This is Orion CKB. Welcome up your ROAS. This is a story I have to share with you all. Welcome back to Up Your ROAS. Today I'm sitting down with Cortland Thomas, who is a growth and consumer insights consultant and also the vice president of Columbia Venture Community. Welcome to the podcast, Cortland. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. I'm really glad to be here. Of course. So why don't you explain to everybody what it is that you do and, you know, how that relates to uh, customer acquisition and retargeting? Yeah, definitely. Looking at some of my my background because I kind of I kind of fell into what I do today just by following what I loved and my passions. I started out in marketing, just your general PR and kind of general social media, um. But then eventually I realized that data was such a huge part of what I was doing on a day to day basis that I kind of made it into my full career. And so now I'm very lucky to say I focus on growth marketing. It's kind of coined from the term growth hack, where you're able to find some kind of super cool trick or some kind of hack that drives your customer acquisition efforts forward. And so that's what I do for a combination of retail and technology companies. That's fantastic. Yeah, I love how the word hack has become such a commonly used, well-loved term. You know, at first I feel like hack was such a negative thing and now I feel like everybody's using it in almost like a positive way like growth hacking or like a life hack you know that's a whole website so exactly um, but mm-hmm. and do you I always have everybody give us a, a fun fact do you have a fun fact about yourself oh uh, probably the the weirdest one I get asked if I'm related to Barack Obama a lot because we look very similar I, I don't have the mole unfortunately um, otherwise I think it'd be pretty close but People think I'm like the younger cousin or something. I don't know. It's interesting. That's amazing. I mean, there are definitely there are definitely worse people to be related oh. to. <laughs> so, well, let's dive right in. Um, how do you think data has changed marketing over the last few years? You know, kind of what has been the impact of data analysis on marketing as a whole? I think this is such a great first question. But I I went to an event a couple weeks ago. Um, and the presenter got up and he said, uh, marketing is dead, growth is alive. And I thought that was so dramatic, but it kind of rings true a little bit, especially nowadays where so many brands are focused on e-commerce. I mean, within 2016, it was the first year that, you know, more purchases were made on mobile versus desktop. And so we're seeing a lot of, um, this shift on a focus to online behavior, not only you know e-commerce, but your lead generation if you're B2B, or even if you're strictly bricks and mortar, you still wanna engage with your consumers through email and uh, social media to get them to come back to store. So, I mean, the internet's obviously taken over, we're beyond that, but we're now seeing that infiltrate a lot of the industries and functions of companies. And so marketing is just one of those that kind of happens to be on that path. And I think data is what's driving so many well-executed marketing campaigns we're seeing. I mean, the first that comes to mind is Spotify and how they transformed all of their consumer data and you know what they brought playlists they listen to, how frequency, how often, what location, and they crafted an advertising campaign just on their data. Uh, they didn't have to go to you know some kind of agency that brainstormed from nothing. They actually went in-house and pulled their data to come up with this. And so I think that rings true for a lot of the stuff that some other great companies do. Yeah, that was a great, I saw one 
billboard that they put up that was something about to the person who played sorry 400 and something times on valentine's day (laughs) what did you do you know i mean and that's one of those things that you see that and you're like that is hilarious i love it when you know people take that kind of stuff and just make it hysterical um i think another really big name but another brand that i saw do that really well too was a ok cupid one of the founders actually wrote a book called dataclism and it was just they were able to take dating data and aggregate that and like you're a heterosexual guy between the ages of blank and blank like what types of profiles you click on the most and stuff like that and they put it out in their blogs uh-huh. and in their news stories and i it got picked up i think by a couple big you know news sources just because of the insight it gave into sort of the dating psyche i i think that that's really interesting now that not only are brands using it to inform you know their strategy of who they go after but even their big advertising campaigns. I think that's really fascinating. So tell us, how can brands find out data about their customers? Actually, the the first step a lot of companies are now taking. Um, we're seeing a lot of startups particularly form these in-house consumer insights teams. And they're, they're kind of like, you know, basically a consulting agency within house that comb the customer data that's pre-existing. Maybe they find another out, a data source or a data set that they can uh, parse through and try to understand who is the customer and what is, you know, what is he or she doing with you? Um, it's kind of like, you know, a first date or a couple series of dates. You want to figure out who they are, what they do, you know, what's their potential relationship together. Um, but I think, Usually when a brand is just starting out to find out about their customer or they're just forming a consumer insights team, it really wanna, you can think about it in three buckets. The first is kind of like an informal approach. The second is, I would say, semi-formal. And the third is very formal. And so uh, I'll talk about each of these. But generally with informal, it's kind of like you take their email and you just kind of scour online. I mean, it's very creepy, but I know a lot of startups who are bootstrapped for money and time. They just, I've seen some of them Google their customer name or their email and they pull up their Facebook or their LinkedIn or their social media. Sometimes they, they're even following their brand social media. So that makes it easier, but that's a very informal approach. It's obviously not, you know, heavy on data. It's very intuition backed, but I think if you're a startup and you know, you're the founder or you're the head of marketing and you're a one person team, I think that's a quick and easy way to find out who your customer is. Uh, one company I know is a grocery uh, online retailer, and they were trying to find out who who was buying with them. And they they just looked on Facebook and they saw that their typical consumer was someone who it was a woman who lived in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, like that kind of you know cool, edgy vibe, uh, very pro- progressive. And they thought for some reason it was a man. <laughs> and so just doing that kind of quick sanity check was great. Uh, but then on the other side of the spectrum, you have very formal processes, which are a little bit more um, robust and have been around since, you know, data has really existed and market research has existed. They are in the form of focus groups, surveying, professional calling, you know, one-on-one kind of that cold call where you say, oh, I'm doing a survey. Do you have five minutes? And you, you call them right before they're about to eat dinner. And they're like, no, I'm eating dinner. It's that kind of like formal process has driven a lot of consumer insights for you know since the beginning of this interest in marketing but i think right in the middle is this kind of semi-formal approach where you're just talking directly to consumers and i think usually this semi-formal approach is the best for uh, a multitude of reasons but probably because it's the cheapest 
um, it's the most direct. You're just talking to the consumer, and then they're, it, it involves them. It makes them feel like they're a part of it. I think a great brand that does this is Glossier. They're, you know, they're well known for incorporating their customer feedback into their product development. They'll put up a blog post that asks, what do you like about your favorite sunscreen? And then they'll actually look through the comment section and see what people like and what they don't like. And then they'll try to incorporate that into the next sunscreen they build out. And I think that's such a more um, forward thinking of, of building your consumer insights, your product, your overall business, because you're involving the consumer and making them feel interested. Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely would think I would love, you know, if I felt like a company was actually listening, I, I f- I would enjoy buying from them feeling like you said, like you had a hand in the process. And I'm surprised that that grocery company thought men were doing. (laughs) I mean, I will admit in my household, my husband does the grocery shopping, but that's because I'm the type of person that like I I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. Oh, let's try that. And I walk out with like three hundred dollars worth of groceries I don't need and nothing I did. (laughs) So I really liked how you talked about sort of the different different approaches and the more middle middle of the road approach. So when companies gather all that data, you know, our company, we work to optimize Facebook and Instagram ads and Snapchat, Pinterest, all that good stuff. But how can they use, how can other companies use data to optimize their ads? How does it apply to social advertising? Well, first, I don't think it has to end at social marketing, but I do think that's such a great start, especially if you're doing any type of paid acquisition, because you think about it, you're paying for that placement. Everyone knows their CPC costs and how to, you know, how to optimize those. If you start to incorporate your customer data uh, and you're tracking your CPCs and your change in strategy, you will definitely see, if you're doing it correctly, a decrease in your costs. I mean, every business is different, but some of the first ways that I realized this is just taking the language. A second approach is targeting better. A third approach is making sure you have the right product market fit. Um, So I'll go through each of these briefly, but with regards to the first, you want to start listening to what your customers say about your product, their pain point, your competition, uh, what makes you different than them. These are all the things that they've picked up from your from your website or your product. And you know every business, you know every business has their brand book. Every founder has the vision of what his company stands for. But it's not really until you ask the consumer what do you think about this company that you really get a third perspective and you see, you know, maybe they don't even appreciate your, you know, search function that you took three months to build. They actually just want to browse or they don't care that you have this amazing filter option because they don't even, you know, they come directly to a product page. You think of all the things that you've built, but it's not really until you talk to them to see what, what drives them, what makes them interested. And that's, that's the interesting part because once you know that, they actually prefer to come through a referral versus an ad, you can start focusing on that strategy. Or if you realize they prefer, I don't know, they like to see less emails because they indicate via a survey or just telling you, I don't want to see your email every day, you know, to send less emails. I think that's, that's the great part. You're able to start incorporating exactly what they say and what they want into your strategy. Well, yeah, and that makes perfect sense that it's not as much as brands, it is about you. It's also not about you and it's about your customer. Obviously, you're the one making the product, but you want to make sure that your customer is getting the benefit and you're you're talking to them the way they want to be uh, spoken to. So I think that's a great, a great piece of advice. 
Have you seen the data application vary between different channels? You know, has it varied between, say, Facebook versus Instagram versus Snapchat? Or do you kind of see it working across channels sort of in the same way? Yeah, I think that's very important, especially if you're you have many teams working on different functions or sides of marketing. Uh, especially if you're working cross-functionally, because you want to be able to speak the same language. But I think what it comes down to it's kind of a yes and no mixed answer. Yes, you want to measure specific KPIs per channel, uh, but I think at the end of the day, it all comes down to one metric, whether that's cost and revenue or number of impressions. You want to come down to some number that can you can use across the board not only just for your marketing channels, but I think even company-wide. I think with regards to channel-specific KPIs, you do want to attach some kind of metric to that to make sure that you're hitting your benchmarks. But versus Facebook ads, that's very clearly about your ROI. Um, so you want to attach a specific KPI to that as well. Yeah, it's one of those... I always love asking some of these more specific questions of, of people that are in the nitty gritty, both our optimizers and people like you, because it's almost always, you said it very politely, um, but it's always, <laughs> it depends. Um, <laughs> when I was in law school, that was always the answer too, you know, because it is very situation specific, as whether you're, you know, are you, which channels are you optimizing across and how big is your marketing team and what are you focused on? And, you know, it's obviously that's one of those questions that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of variables, but I appreciate your, your very uh, uh, nuanced answer. I thought that was a good, good effort. Um, now, we've talked a little bit about sort of, uh, almost like the e-commerce side a little bit. How do you think the data can be used to optimize your lead generation strategy? And is that different or the same? And can you give any examples? Definitely. I think they're, I mean, they're all built on the same framework, which I, this is what I love about growth. Uh, if you ever read, if anyone listening gets a chance to read Sean Elis's uh, Hacking Growth book, I think that lays the perfect foundation for uh, for growth for any type of company, whether you're e-commerce, B2B, retail even, you know, with only brick and mortar, which is probably rare these days. But I think if you just have the framework in mind, you can really achieve growth in so many ways. But I think specifically with lead generation more for B2B, which is my experience, that's still about growth. You're still trying to acquire users as quickly and cheaply as possible. You're still trying to activate them to get them to, to get to that aha moment of the website or of your product. Um, and you're still trying to get them to buy at the end of the day. So at the end of it's very similar to e-commerce, but I think with lead generation, it's a little bit easier. <laughs> I remember as part of the e-commerce team at a beauty site, we were so focused on measuring our cost per acquisition, our customer lifetime value, our, you know, all these KPIs that you attribute to subscription models or B2B which is very hard to kind of bring in-house, especially if you're beauty where people are buying, you know, one category versus another every other couple months. And so um, I do think for the B2B players in the house, it's a little bit easier. So <laughs> uh, give, yourselves, uh, give yourselves a pat on the back. But I think generally with data, B2B, it's a lot easier because there's a little bit more of a formality attached to it. And what was that book you mentioned again? I feel like we're going to need to start like a book podcast between Dataclism and then what was the book you mentioned? Oh, yeah. Hacking Growth by Sean Ewis. I think I'm pronouncing his last name properly. If he's listening, I'm not. Just 
just don't kill me. But it's <laughs> it's really the foundation for growth hacking. So we'll have to we'll have to start our own business book uh, business book podcast. But you know what impact does data have on customer acquisition versus retargeting with your customers? Because you know I know we've talked a little bit more about customer acquisition and how you can use the data to go after customers, but also how can you use it to retarget your already loyal or at least your fan base? No, I love this question because it really drives in on what growth is for a lot of e-commerce companies and even you know B2B. But I think when you start to look at who your customers are, why they pick you over your 5,000 competitors, uh, what what do they walk away with remembering about your brand? Once you have all those pieces and many more, you can hone in on them. I think that's probably one of the most critical things. Uh, you just want to keep diving deeper because you never hit that point where there's no more. I think if you're constantly evaluating your data, you'll always find something exciting. And so if you're able to bring that back into the customer experience and into your strategy, you're able to optimize even further and get even more insights uh, so specifically, I remember with one e-commerce company I was working for, we did a, a full sweep of their customer segmentation, trying to understand who the customer was, uh, what age they were, where they lived, gender, uh, product affinity, how they heard about, you know, basically a 360 view of the customer. And we found that uh, through a combination of surveying and interviewing about uh, 2,000 customers, that 5% of their top customers were male. Um, and they didn't. They were shocked to find that, that out because they, they're a beauty company. And so to think that, you know, and they're strictly e-commerce. So to find out that 5% of the people that are buying the most with them are people that they're not even targeting, that just opens up such an opportunity for them to find out, find out more about those guys and get more of them. You know, why are these guys buying you know, $30 moisturizer from a brand they've never heard of. <laughs> like there's some kind of magic happening there that, you know, if we're not, we've never planted that seed. And so trying to find out why it happened and how to, to get more of that to happen. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think that that is kind of the best aspect of utilizing data in your marketing is that it does open you up to people that maybe you thought you know you you obviously when you build a brand you have sort of a core customer in mind but once it's out there you know you could have a, a group that you have no idea that are major fans of your product and you know they're not the person you might have been going for but obviously like you're very happy <laughs> I, I wouldn't think anybody would be like no I don't want to you know have these people as customers <laughs> so I think that that is that's probably the coolest thing uh, that comes out of using data in your marketing strategy has there any the, uh, <laughs> you know has there been anything that surprised you the most in your work either about the data itself or the impact it's had I mean that last story you gave was actually probably one of those you know the fact that there was men that were that into a beauty brand. Um, are there any other times where you've been sort of taken aback, but in a cool way? Yeah, so many. They say that the data shouldn't surprise you, and like you shouldn't you shouldn't <laughs> look for a surprise because then you're probably off the benchmark a little bit. But that's what I love. <laughs> I love when you find out that that cool secret or something that you wasn't expecting. It's because then you bring it back to the team, and at first they're like, "What?" They don't believe you a little bit. But then you pull up that Excel model 
or the survey and you show them like this is actually true like <laughs> this is what's happening you know under the hood i think that that example of the male customer is definitely going to follow me for a while some other great ones cuz you talking you brought up a really good question about brands having their core customer in mind when they start out cuz usually you, once you start uh, and put it out there you're actually probably far off from what you thought which i think is that's a big pill to swallow, I think, especially for some luxury fashion brands that I've worked for. A lot of them have this idea of who who they want the consumer to be, who they want who they want to show is wearing their product. But I remember for a, a pretty big handbag company uh, here in the states that I worked for, we found out that their consumer was not fashionable by any means. <laughs> we did these in-person focus groups with them. And we saw that they weren't by any means fashionable. They weren't the model that they were putting on ads, which is that's part of the aspirational side of marketing luxury. But I think that was such a shock for a lot of the company overall, for people that weren't working on that project. When we pulled up the videos that showed people in the focus group, they were still they were shocked that, you know, this is who we're actually selling to. But then it makes it a little bit more real. It makes it more understandable because um, then you know that, yeah, we're actually providing luxury as a service, really. Like, that's what we're selling. Another really interesting find for me was learning that for uh, a company that only 9% of their customer base represented about 58% of reoccurring revenue year over year. And that's insane if you think about it. Even if you know we just have some dummy numbers around, if that's 100 customers, nine, nine of them are bringing in half your money. That is just insane to me. But that's how it worked. Um, and people didn't believe me, but we went back into the data and we saw that you know, they had six years of data. And so if, you're, if you look at the people who've bought every three months, for those six years, give or take, and they're each buying, you know, an AOV of this, and they're buying this many products, and they have this retention, then yeah, it all kind of adds up. And I think once you, if you have the data to do that, I think that's probably one of the first things any company needs to do. Look at what your, they call them active users. Um, I guess if you're e-commerce, the concept still carries, like who's shopping with you the most? And for that, you can complete an FRM analysis, so, um, you know, look at who's buying with you the most, who's spending the most, and who's been around the most. And you'll quickly see from the people that hit the, the check marks in all those boxes, who are your kind of core users or your, you know, most favorite uh, fans, and just understand what they're doing and how they're doing it. That's really cool. You know, I love that we've gotten to the point now where you can figure out that kind of data. Well, I know you're a busy man, so before we break for today, do you have kind of best practices or three or four takeaways people can use to apply data analysis when they're looking at their overall marketing strategy? Definitely. The first is one that I always try to keep to heart because I don't I don't always follow as much as I should, so I always try to remind myself about it. It's just keep it simple. You want to keep your metrics down to you know less than five. You want to really target one North Star metric. That's kind of the key metric you need to hit, um, and it it illustrates perfectly how everything is operating. For Facebook, it's daily active users. For some of the other brands, it might be revenue. For Airbnb, I know it's number of nights booked. You want to have some kind of one core North Star metric 
which is dictating how everything else works, that you need one metric to drive your growth and even kind of company-wide strategy that everyone can point to. I think beyond that, maybe having only three to four secondary metrics that kind of that go into this kind of growth equation, but generally just keeping it simple because usually once it gets more complex, that's when things get a little bit uh, wonky. I think second, you want to track for the right things. A lot of brands that I've met are still fixated on this idea of brand awareness or sometimes brand engagement, which I think that has a purpose in the sales cycle and just generally, you know, good branding. For me, it's always fluffy. You know, <laughs> when someone says when I'm working with a company and they say, oh, we have such great brand awareness. I kind of stop a little bit and I ask them, what do you mean? Like, right. <laughs> how do you yeah. know that? And they'll tell me, oh, we have an ad running or people know us or we want people to know us. And I, you know, being a metrics guy, I kind of roll my eyes a little yeah. when they say that because it's not for me. It's I mean, every company is different. Like, like I said, brand awareness has a place in the sales cycle. But I think if you're trying to improve your sales, you really don't want to look at brand awareness of that. You probably want to look at you know, website visitors, number of, you know, your retention rate, how many people are coming back to use or view, uh, purchase. Really just keep tracking for the right things. Um, and I think tracking along the funnel. If you're doing a Facebook ad campaign, whether you're e-commerce or B2B, you want to look at the full funnel and see if, you know, the, let's just say, 100 users you got to come in via Facebook ad, are they actually coming back two months later? Because if not, then you're just paying for these quick hits that aren't really contributing to the long one. But if you do see that those 100 users you got into Facebook ads actually turn out to be your number one customer group, you want to look at the full funnel and track along the way. And then I think third, even though they say this, you shouldn't do this, I mean, I, I love movies. I love plots. So I always like the surprise. I like to find surprising things in data. And if I haven't found anything that's interesting or caught me off guard, even just a little, I'm not that impressed and I'll, I'll keep digging. Because usually there's some kind of story or some kind of element in there that can tell or at least point to a bigger story. Awesome. Yeah, I think those are some really great, solid tips. Just to recap, you say keep it simple, target one North Star metric, which is dictating how everything else sort of falls in line. You can do a couple of secondary metrics, but keep it focused on one for the main main part of it so that you don't get distracted and then number two track for the right things and tracking along the funnel you know brand awareness is great but you want to focus on hard data you know sales retention rate leads whatever it is that you're sort of looking to to get out of it you know you want to make sure that you focus on that and track that and then try and surprise yourself with the data and I think that's that's a sort of a, a fun one but also one that I think it is is cool because I think we can get so bogged down in the numbers, not bogged down, but you can get so deep sometimes in, in tracking and targeting and looking at all these things that, you know, there are surprises out there and, you know, looking for those and trying to find those, I think are, are crucial, you know, even if it comes to testing different creative or testing different copy or that kind of stuff, it's, it's good to be able to surprise yourself because, you know, there's always going to be a wealth of information available. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and coming to chat with us. Do you have a, a sign off or any kind of like call sign before we head out? I think if anyone's interested to learn more, definitely check out Hacking Growth as well as Ryan Holiday's 
Growth Hacking. That's a really that's a, a shorter read. It's also kind of an intro into growth hacking that's really excellently written. It's has all these stories about how companies have you know built their their growth. But otherwise, I'm excited to announce I'll be launching a blog about growth hacking in some bits. So if you're interested, be sure to just follow my Twitter or I have a website. But otherwise, I, I loved being here. Thank you for having me. No problem. Do you want to give us your Twitter handle and website? Sure. Both of them are just Cortland Thomas, C-O-U-R-T-L-A-N-D, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S. And I'd love to just, I, I really do love what I do. So if you have any questions, if you're not sure where to begin, please feel free to just tweet or email. Well, definitely. And I think I'll probably be tweeting you as some additional questions because this is giving me a lot to think about. But thank you again. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We will catch you in two weeks. Have a good one. Bye.